Welcome everybody to On the Edge with Eddie, detangling our black identities. I am your host, Eddie Etty. Hey, listen, like I say every single time, I am thrilled and excited you're joining our journey to explore all the different shades of black identities, have real conversations and discussions. Our conversations, stories, and discussions are not meant to degrade, discourage, prove a point exploring our black identities. It's all about empowering, learning, and giving people a voice to tell their stories. And you know what? At times be a voice for those people who don't feel comfortable telling their stories. Hashtag, every single time, not all black people are the same. Hey, listen, I'm telling you, not all black people are the same because you know, a lot of times people are there thinking, oh, hey, all black people look alike, which they don't, first of all. Um, secondly, we all have our stories and we'll have our uh, moments, our memories we want to share. And today I have a wonderful guest with me. I call her my little sister because obviously she's my little sister. Um, I have Ifwa Asari on the line. I have to say when I knew her, she was Ifwa Oteng Amako, which I think I'm saying that right. Um, listen, let me tell you a little bit about Ifwa. Ifwa, um, I met Ifwa in Wesley Girls, Ghana, um, when she was in high school, in boarding school um, with my little sister, Elam. And there was they, they had this clique. There was this clique of four of them that used to hang out all the time. Um, it was Ifwa, Elam, Susan, Shelly. Shelly was the third one. And instead of like calling them like the 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 three musketeers, it was like the quad musketeers or something like that. Um, listen, if since then have gone into sort of like the clinical optometry field, vision science, public health. She has, I mean, dominated this um uh, this field with like multiple awards. The two-time recipient of the prestigious Izell, I think that's how you call it, Izell Fellowship Award, which is awarded by the American Academy of uh, Optometry, the Canadian National Institute of Blind Doctoral Fellowship, the Harvard Presidential Scholarship um, from Harvard University, the Ghanaian Canadian Achievement Award. I mean, she has done it all. If you are blind, this is the lady that you want to talk to. Ifwa, welcome to On the Edge with Eddie. How are you doing, sis? I'm doing well, Eddie. Thank you. Kudos to all the amazing things you're doing. Um, all the research, I've been sort of stalking you, following you, and I'm like, wow, you know, I, I know that. I know that woman, right? <laughs> um, but your journey really you know, started way back in Papua New Guinea. I mean, well, first of all, way, way back. You, you, you're Ghanaian, um, Ghanaian born, but your journey started in Papua New Guinea um, when you were young, very little. Tell me a little bit about way back then when you were in Papua New Guinea and growing up, what was it like for Pap uh, being in Papua New Guinea? Yeah, so... Um... That's like way back, I, uh, right until I think we moved, we left Papua New Guinea when I was nine years old. So uh, a lot of the things I sadly don't remember, but I've been told a lot of stories. I've seen a lot of pictures and um, yeah, Papua New Guinea was a, a very interesting place. 
Um, there was a lot of influence from the Australian government and the international school I went to was most of the teachers were actually Australian, but we had like teachers from, we had some African teachers. My mom was one of the teachers there at the time. We had teachers from India and actually very few um, teachers that were actually from Papua New Guinea. So um, it, was, it was interesting. I mean, we had a, a, a helper, sort of like a nanny at home that was from Papua New Guinea. And I remember her quite well. She taught me pidgin, which is the, the local language, well, one of the local languages there. So I, I still yeah. remember one or two words yeah. that she taught me. But um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was interesting. I think I can actually talk of my first, I don't know, I wouldn't call it experience with racism per se, but um, I guess the first time I realized that I was black or that I, I had apparently there was a, yeah. a color to me that made me different. Uh, before um, you do that though, Papua New Guinea is, it, it's, it's, it, well, it's actually a black country. I mean, there is a lot of different races there, but uh, majority of people do have darker skin. Oh yeah, yep. Right? They're not, it's not like, it's not like, you know, the United States or even Australia where exactly. you know, it's predominantly white. It's predominantly black. Um, it is. Different shades. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, so tell, tell me a little bit about when you first noticed that, oh, you know, your blackness or your skin color, it's actually a thing. Yeah. So um, again, in the international school I went to, uh, it was, yeah, a good number of the people there were white Australians. Um, and a lot of my friends were Australians. Uh, so there was this one day, apparently I came back home from school, I was probably about four or five years old. And I asked my mom, mom, why am I black? The question every mother wants to hear, right? <laughs> yeah. And of course she was taken aback. And um, of course she goes into telling me that, well, you're, you're black because God made you black and black is beautiful. And that, uh, you know, all the things she needed to say as a mother. As to why exactly I asked that question and what exactly happened to me in school that day is still a mystery, but it must have been something definitely negative for me to come home and suddenly ask questions about, about that. Yeah. Um, another interesting thing about Papua New Guinea is the uh, natives would call Africans, that it was actually quite a sizable African community there. And this is, we're talking about like the late 80s, um, so they would call us nigger, <laughs> and they would call, wow. call the children, yeah, and they would call the, the kids, and these are dark-skinned people, some of them are like way darker than us, right, right. Would, would call me nigger baby, you know, and they, they didn't mean harm by it, that's the thing, right, right. it was just yeah, a yeah, term yeah, that they yeah. might have picked yep. up from who, who knows, yeah, but yeah, yeah. 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 So it would be for us to correct them and be like, okay, it's not quite right for you to use the word nigger. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, you bring up a, a good point because a lot of times, I mean, the terms that we use has different impacts on, you know, or can be looked at differently as parts of the world, right? Um, so maybe for them, it's it's okay, right? It's it's not a bad thing, right? They did not mean it as negative but at exactly, all. You I know, have no um, idea. Right. So, so for example, you know, if you if you're in Ghana and you say something to the effect of a black person, right, or you're black, or hey, look at that white person, you know, it's it you don't the way you say it, it's not the same meaning as if you were in United States and you're like, oh, look at that black person, or look at that exactly, black person, right? exactly. Um, you know, and it's interesting that 
you know, a, a predominantly black country like Papua New Guinea, they use terms like that, and it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's normal. Yeah, so that. strange, yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. So, do you do you remember if um the because you went to international school? Do you remember if people wanted to touch your hair or you know touch your skin or anything like that because you look different? Not that I recall. You know, you, you had that experience, and then you move to Ghana. <laughs> <laughs> right um mm-hmm. you know where you move back to your home country and things are okay or not okay <laughs> yeah so i've spent like a good number of years um in papua new guinea we moved back to ghana and here is this black african looking girl speaking with an australian accent oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so you can imagine what that would have been like for me um i I ended up going to, so we moved back to, I was was about nine. I went to another international school in Kumasi, Ghana. At the time, it was probably the only international school. So there was a number, again, people from all kinds of racial groups in the school. So it was was a good transition for me coming from an international school in Papua New Guinea and continuing in one in Kumasi. It's actually interesting how I ended up there because it was Purely by chance, we were on our way driving to the university primary school in Kumasi. And then we see, we drive past Ridge School and we're like, oh, that place looks kind of neat. Why don't we just swing by and have a look? Um, And so we we go there, we talk to the headmistress and guess what? The headmistress is Australian. Um, Yeah, so she's like super excited to see me et cetera, et cetera. And I, I end up getting enrolled. And this is apparently a school where mothers would enroll, put their kids on waiting lists before they were even born. So yeah. Yeah. just the chance that I ended up at Ridge School was, was, was quite, um, hmm. quite remarkable. But anyway, so I start in class four, I guess that's like grade four in yeah. the US. Yeah. And so my initial struggles was just my accent, like, even though this, this was an international school, so there were like people who had been around, you know, um, but I was, and I was a very bubbly little kid. So I was really eager to always answer questions in class, always have my hand up. But now I'd get called in class by my teacher. Um, I'd answer the question and the teacher would be like, I don't understand. <laughs> what did you say? And then the kids would just stop laughing. <laughs> wow yeah and this is an international school in ghana yeah so you can imagine if it had been like a mainstream school what that would have been like yeah so it made me become a little more timid wouldn't answer questions in class as much um and then again i would be uh even outside of school we lived in a very local probably lower income neighborhood at the time. My parents, of all the places for them to build a home, they actually mm-hmm. built it in a, a neighborhood that was very kind of like low income. Um, so there were struggles there too. We would be like, sometimes we'd take walks outside of our home and the kids in the neighborhood would hear us because we spoke English with each other without accents, Australian yep. accents. And I say we, me and my older brothers and, um, you know, kids would laugh and be like, Irish first contumbre, which I'm sure you <laughs> understand. Yeah. Laugh at accents yep. and call us Ubruni, which means white person. Right. And um, in fact, they they refer to our house as the Australian house. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it was just you know, the struggles of being this little African girl 
with a foreign accent and just not feeling quite like I belonged. Like I felt like I wasn't really being accepted by, um, you know, my own people. Your own people, right. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> you, so you get back home, uh, a place where you call home, and everybody there is now, you know, making fun of you. And, you know, again, I had a very a similar experience and that's why I was like, there's this loss of identity, right? Um, and so yeah. when I got there, it was like I had lost my identity because I, maybe you didn't feel like you belong in Papua New Guinea, but now you're back yeah. home where you call that's home and you yeah. don't feel like you belong there either because, you know, yeah. people are making fun of you and, you know, calling you, name, calling you a white girl. <laughs> and, you know, it, you're like, uh, okay, what <laughs> is going on here? Did you ever feel like, where do I even belong, right? Where is oh, home yeah. now, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a little bit about some of that experience when you were called a white girl in in an all-Black country um, and you sort of just didn't know what your identity was. Yeah, it was quite a, uh, I guess, an unfortunate experience, so to speak. Because, um, yeah, I mean, as far as I was concerned, I considered myself as Ghanaian as it got. I, I was brought up in a Ghanaian home. My parents, we, we didn't speak the language as well initially, but my parents would speak it to us. We'd respond in English, but we understood, you know, and we'd speak, we'd eat Ghanaian meals at home. So it's a very Ghanaian environment that we, we grew up in, even when we were overseas. And uh, so coming back and suddenly people feeling like, oh, you actually, yeah, no, you're not, you're not Ghanaian was, was, it was hard to deal with. Um, and it sort of continued throughout because I, uh, you're probably going to talk about this next. I'm going to high school as well. Uh, I went to high school in Ghana. I went to, um, I had my first degree in Ghana as well at the Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology. So throughout that whole time, I just, you know, always sort of felt like I was different, you know, that I didn't really belong. Let's, let's talk a little bit about um, high school. So the high school that you went to, Wesley Hills High School, is as you guys will refer, it's the prime of the prime, the best of the yep. best in Ghana, boarding mm-hmm. school, all girls. Um, but <clears throat> sometimes that school can seem like a cult. <laughs> it, oh, yeah. Right? It's, it's very much, you have to be there the whole time. And because of the population that goes there, the way it's presented, there is a culture at the high school um, tell me a little bit about, you know, being, again, being an outsider a, a little bit, uh, going to an international school and then getting to Wesley Girls High School, an all-girls black, black school, you stay there all the time, and it's, it's like a prison. Well, not like a prison, but the education is fabulous, um, but it's, it's basically like a prison. <laughs> tell me about that, about the boarding school, Wesley Girls, and your experience there, um, yeah, so uh, Wesley Girls High School, like you said, was like, you know, cream of the crop as far as any, uh, you know, in terms of the uh, um, girls' education in Ghana high schools, you know, first name that comes up all the time is Wesley Girls High School. Um, we would always top the um, senior secondary school exams, which is the final exam you write at the end of your high school. So, yeah, the education was perfect. Um, it, was, it was just very, there's a lot of influence from, again, like many things in Ghana, the British, um, uh, the British culture, 
culture and British um, education. So it was very stringent rules. Um, you know, you're not allowed outside of the campus unless, you know, you have like a, a very good reason. And with that, you have an escort um, and every minute of your day is planned. So a specific time to the minute, you know, you're, you're either asleep, like you're having a nap or you're up, you're having a bath or you have chores and the chores could be anywhere from cleaning a bathroom to um, uh, sweeping a classroom. Um, so it was, it, was, it was an interesting place. I mean, they taught you everything besides academics, right. how to walk, how to talk. How to be uh, a woman. <laughs> yeah, how to be yeah. a woman, how to take yeah. care of yourself. And I think some of the things that I appreciated the most was just being able to speak your mind. Um, you know, yeah. you're a woman, but you are, uh, you know, you need to be able to speak your mind to have opinions yeah. um, and that the sky and that the sky, the sky is always the limit. So, uh, yeah, I mean, for first things like that, I'm very grateful. And I feel like going forward, that has definitely shaped my career path. Um, now, as a uh, someone that had lived overseas and feeling that, you know, I didn't quite belong. I mean, high school by this time, I was, what, 15. So I had spent probably like a good number of six years uh, back in the country. Um, so I had sort of gotten used to things. Yes, I felt different, but I'd gotten used to being different, <laughs> so to speak. But yeah, there were some challenges as well at Wesley Girls High School with, you know, some of the seniors thinking that I was faking my accent. I had managed to lose some of my Australian accent. I didn't sound as Australian as I did before. But still, there were some words that, you know, I just couldn't help it. Uh, I just still didn't quite sound Ghanaian. So you have seniors sort of picking on you because of the way you spoke. Um, but making friends, so when you're in Wesley Girls, like I said, I mean, I think, you know, um, the friends that you made and you spent most of your time with, they were all like you, right? They were yeah, all, we were all friends, right? Yeah. You all came from a different country. You all sound different. I mean, even though you lost some of that, um, the, the Western accent, you were all international, right? What we was it so appealing to just be a clique of international um, bred, um, you know, girls versus, you know, hanging out, making friends with the locals? Yeah, I think it was just we had a lot in common. Um, you know, we had a lot to talk about, like even being picked on because of our accents, we could uh, we could relate to that with, with each other. And um, we just sort of did our things differently too. So, you know, just seeing like Elam, your sister was one of, one of my, um, was part of that clique. I, 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 it's, it's interesting because when I first met Elam, my impression was I'm like, who is this girl? Like this yep. American girl all over the place, loud. Um, but eventually we ended very up- loud. <laughs> yeah, very loud. We ended up in the same class and I just absolutely just drew to her. Like she was a, she was a magnet. But yeah. yeah, just, you know, our experiences as being somewhat different, we could just relate to each other. And we, we really hit it off, um, the four of us. Uh, the other, other girl was, she had lived in the UK yeah. for some while, for some time as well, so. Did things yeah. change for you when you finally left Wesley Gills and started um, tech? Um, so not, not really. Again, I guess, you know, as the years go by, I, I was speaking a lot more tree, even though tree, which is the, the I'm, so I'm a Shanti, like you know, so that's the language that Shanti speak. 
so I could speak a lot more of um, the local language. And even though English is the official language in, um, in Ghana, like in Kumasi, people still, you know, informally speak a lot of Cree on the streets as opposed to, to English. So even going to university, it sort of helped to be able to, you know, speak Cree. So yeah, by then, you know, I was speaking Cree, even though I still had an accent. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, so in university, I still, my classmates, like the, the, the cohort I was in, they still used to refer to me though, as for if, as for if, yeah, she's, she's a white girl, like jokingly yeah, yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> um, so there's still that amount of me not being seen as a little bit different and also being considered Dada B. So sort of like, mm-hmm. you know, pampered, she comes from a, a well-to-do home. Oh, yeah, so they just, yeah. I always was a little bit different, but yeah. um, you, you sort of come to accept it uh, after a while. So then, <laughs> you did optometry, optometry. I did. Um, yeah. And being referred to as the white girl uh, growing up in Ghana, what motivated or influenced you to sort of dedicate yourself to um, vision work or vision science? And more importantly, you are called a white girl. Again, that a be being raised, spoiled, and that's what people yeah. refer to as. But most of your work is involves you. You do a lot of work in the low income mm. um, individuals, as far mm. as you know, the people who don't actually, you know, have the ability to receive care. Right? What went into that decision for you? Yeah. So. Um... When I did optometry at KNUST, so at the university, I was amongst the third batch of um, optometrists to to graduate out of any program, optometry program in Ghana. So optometry was still a fairly new um, program. So this is doctor of optometry. They had like a postgraduate program prior to that, but it was still a fairly new program at the time. And um, no, just a number of challenges. So optometry at the time, when we graduated, um, you know, you work in an optometry clinic, but everyone that knows about you and comes to you are people that are more well-to-do. So they, they, um, yeah, they're more well-to-do. Uh, they're more educated. And that's the only reason why they know that, you know, there's something called an optometrist that needs, that can look after their eyes and they can afford to come to you to be seen so they can pay for that consultation fee. But uh, we did some outreach work uh, throughout my training program in the smaller towns and villages of uh, Kumasi. And that's where you'd see like the biggest issues. Like you'd see 16 year old kids with glaucoma, so completely blind in both eyes, being led by their mother or an older person. So it's just such a huge need um, in the lower income um, bracket. And these were the people who needed us the most, but couldn't really afford to even come um, into clinics to come and see us. And so that's sort of where my interest started to grow as far as, um, you know, um, looking at barriers to access and understanding, you know, what the issues were that were preventing people of lower income, the people that needed us more from actually getting access to eye care. Um, And so that sort of um, led to, you know, public health or public health vision, where you're looking at the public health aspects of um, accessing vision care. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So I think um, recently, I think it was uh, 2019, 
2015 report um, from the World Health Organization. Um, they have this report, I think the uh, report on vision, it says something to the effect of, I think um, no less than 2.2 billion people um, in the world need correction and they don't have it. Um, you know, so again, it speaks to sort of the importance of, you know, your work and, you know, what you're doing and the research that you're doing, because again, like you said, a lot of times, you know, it could be as simple as lack of education, right? Or lack of resources. Um, again, we know what we know and we don't know what we don't know, but the population for the, the, the low income um, or the lower economic classes, they worry about a lot of other things, you know, day to day that, you know, maybe, you know, getting their ice check is not something that you talked about, right? Um, and I think, you know, what you're saying from your um, outreach that you did when you, when you finish your program and seeing that in the field, it triggered something for you, right? Um, so now after you're doing all this work, do you still feel like <laughs> you were the white girl that people called you? Or now is it more like, you know what, I am going to impact change and I am going to, you know, sort of be the, the driving force behind um, clinical optometry, the public health space, vision science. What did this work do to you, uh, both mentally, emotionally, um, and how did you how did you sort of push yourself by seeing all of this? Yeah, so um, yeah, just you know, you just see these things, and it 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 affects you in a certain way. Uh, you know, um, I'm still in the process. I, I like to say, still in the process of becoming that person I want to be. That person being someone that wants to impact change, particularly in my country of Ghana. Um, I'm still in the process. I'm finishing up my, my PhD right now, but I still, I feel like indeed with everything, with all the experience and training that I've received since then, uh, I, I, I have to be that person that um, goes back and impacts change um, amongst my people, especially the vulnerable. Um, populations in Ghana, because like he mentioned, some of these solutions are just as simple as getting a pair of glasses, and that alone can impact one's quality of life significantly. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Okay, so then now, finally, um, being <laughs> the brilliant person that you are, um, you are getting ready to come to the United States. And you're not just coming to the United States, you're going to Harvard, <laughs> right? First of all, tell me sort of your, what your preconceived notions of Harvard was or the United States and, you know, a place like Harvard was. Um, and then wh while you're preparing to come and then what happened when you first got to Harvard? Yeah, so I mean, to start off with, I. I... I, so I had an older brother that he, that lived in the U.S. at the time, and he was really the person to encourage me to apply to Harvard. I mean, first and foremost, I'm like, he mentions Harvard the first time he says that, I'm like, you've got to be kidding, like, <laughs> Harvard <laughs> University, me. Right. Yeah, but he was convinced, I mean, he had friends, he lived in Boston at the time, and he had friends at Harvard University, he's like, I honestly think you're capable, um, I'll help you with your application, you really should apply. 
So even at that point, I'm just like, okay, I'll just apply for to make him happy, just to get right. him off my case, right? Because um, I just didn't think that. I mean, for what you hear of Harvard University, it's like you just imagine this heaven, you know, of some <laughs> where yep. everyone's like, you know, walking Super on clouds. Brilliant and, you know, you yeah, exactly. And yeah, uh -huh. exactly. <laughs> Um, so anyway, I did apply and surprise, surprise, I got um, admitted into the Masters of Public Health program with uh, Global Health as my focus. Um, so that was a very pleasant surprise and it came with a full tuition scholarship so that made it even more accessible wow. to me. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I, 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 I go to Harvard University again with that, those ideas. And even before I end up there, I mean, I'm already intimidated. But I'm like, <laughs> oh my gosh, like, right. why am I going to even talk to these people, right? Um, so I do get there. And indeed, you know, it's, there's a lot of smart people in my class. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of people who were very, like, very much like me. Um, there were quite a number of Nigerians in my class, for example, that had come from Nigeria. Yeah. Um, most of them had, uh, were physicians who trained in, in Nigeria. And um, just being there with them, especially, I'm like, oh, okay, you know, like it's, it's not, not as bad as I thought. Um, yeah. And I mean, even besides uh, other Black people, Africans like me that were there, there were Americans who also came from like, um, you know, sort of like humble, humble beginnings, humble backgrounds, similar yeah. to me. So at least it was nice seeing that there were other people like me, but regardless, like some of those classes, um, I still felt like sometimes like, wow, do I really belong here? Did they make a mistake somehow by having me in here? And just that mental, just having those thoughts going through your head sometimes, it can really, really, really cripple you. Um, I, I remember my first couple of semesters, it was just so hard for me to even talk, like speak up in class, speak up in class, you know, because I just, the imposter syndrome was just so real. Like I felt like, oh my God, like, you know, but I, at the same time we were being awarded, um, part of our grade for courses was based on participation in, in discussions in class. So it's like, I have to speak, but speaking up is also so hard for me. Um, <clears throat> let me so ask that, you quickly, though. Let me ask you quickly. So, the shyness when you first moved to Ghana was like you didn't want to speak out because people was making fun of you and yeah. why and stuff like that. Did that experience come back to you when you got to Harvard? And now, you know, you are in a predominantly white country, Harvard University. Did you? think back to when you're a child, you know, thinking, oh, well, I don't want to say anything because people are going to say, now I sound African. <laughs> that's, that's the funny part. Like, I sounded African at this point. I, um, maybe not as African as some Africans, but I right, still, yeah. like, a, like your accent is not thick pine. Yeah, like, it's not yeah. thick pine. Like, <laughs> yeah. it, it's, it's just, it's just on the light thickness. Yeah. It's on the I, light I, thickness. Like some people, but, yeah, when they speak, yeah, you're like, yeah, correct. You see that. that it is from Africa. Uh, hey, you are talking pine. <laughs> <laughs> So I still I still had a, a, a bit of an, a Ghanaian or yeah I say Ghanaian accent um, and so yeah that was part of the intimidation too was like well I don't really sound like a lot of the people in the classroom maybe they won't really understand me and it's just interesting because I had Nigerian classmates with very thick Nigerian accents 
Right. Who could be bothered? They would right, speak yeah. up. <laughs> Don't understand me. That's your problem. You better just open up your ears. And I kind of admire them for that because I'm like, shoot, mm. like uh, I like that he speaks up regardless of you know how he might speak. Because even I, I had problems understanding him. How much more? Right. Um, yeah. Did you um do you recollect or remember sort of your first um unfair treatment or maybe it's more of a microaggression? at Harvard or when you went, you came to the United States the first time? I do remember one experience where um, uh, there was this girl in my class, an American, uh, Asian American, who was like, um, she's like, oh, I did some work in Ghana. I worked with like a nonprofit in Ghana and I went there and the people were just so hungry and, um, <laughs> it was so so hungry and poor and they couldn't speak English and wow. yeah she started <laughs> I, all of this part of Ghana did she go to <laughs> I know exactly and so I let her speak and I'm like okay fine yes I, I do admit that there are parts of um, Ghana where people are struggling are not getting meals to eat can barely speak English but there, that's just one aspect of Ghana. So which other, like, you know, there's a bunch of other places in Ghana where, I mean, look at me, I'm here, I'm right. speaking English. I don't look hungry. I don't think I look hungry. Right. So just the fact that, you know, she's quick to just center on mm. that one little aspect of, of the country as opposed to, and feel okay about telling me that. Right. Um, I just found it like really, really strange. Uh, yeah. And then I know there's this one other experience later on where um, I had a friend that was American and his was just more of ignorance. I think he just really didn't know. And he's asking me questions like, um, he's like, oh, so uh, do they have hot dogs in Ghana? <laughs> do they have hot dogs in Ghana? And then he's like, oh, and what's the nightlife like in Ghana? Like, do you guys have clubs? Do you have um, you know, restaurants and stuff like that? And he was just genuinely curious. He really didn't be harmed by it. But right, just the right. fact that he even felt that he needed to ask those questions was just really baffling. <laughs> wow. Huh. Well, so you didn't stop there. You end up in Canada, right? I so, did not, yes. Canada and the United States are, you know, neighbors, but they're actually two different countries. Um, you know, again, the time that I've spent in Canada, it, mm. it's way different, especially the, the people, the mentality and the culture of Canadians is somewhat different from the culture of Americans, right? So how did you end up in Canada? And I'm just going to ask out, is there is the racism in Canada as bad as it is in the United States? Yeah, so I, um, I mean, at this point, I was still planning to get my degrees and go back to Ghana as quickly as possible. So I, I went to, uh, I came to Canada with the idea of getting a PhD in vision science and then heading back home. That changed because I met my husband along the way at blah, blah, blah. But um, I ended up spending about eight years in, in, in Canada, in Ontario. Um, and yeah, it's, it's different in some ways in the sense that I found Canadians to be, and I, this is probably a lot of people tend to say this about Canadians, I just found them to be very friendly, very open people. You sit with someone on the bus and by the time you get off, you know, like everything, everything about, about them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I lived in three different cities in Ontario. 
by far my favorite would have been Toronto because it was extremely multicultural. Um, uh, in terms of racism, honestly, like I was just thinking about this before my call with you, I can't really pinpoint like any specific experiences of racism to me as in like that I experienced as an individual. Of course, I heard stories from um, friends. So, I mean, the racism is real. I don't think it's as, um, as obvious as it is in the US. It's yeah. more subtle. Um, it's more it's more subtle in Canada as exposed to uh, as opposed to the U.S. Um, but overall, especially in cities like Toronto, where it's like you get people from almost all walks of life, it's it's just an amazing place to be. It's like you're there and you just feel at ease. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So the eight years that you were in Canada, um, you know, did you feel that? Um, life in Canada and life in the United States, um, one, there's, there's a level of difference, right? There's the, the, the microaggressions and, you know, the, the identity piece. Um, and I don't know much about Canada and, you know, slavery and stuff like that. Um, is there, is the, the blacks in Canada, do they function in the same space as the black in the United States? Um, is, is that something that you notice or something that, you know, came about that you experienced? Yeah, I think, you know, similarly you do come across, um, you know, black communities that are all about, you know, I'm constantly being uh, uh, discriminated against for the color of my skin or, you know, they're constantly talking about it and, uh, it can be a little tiring being around people like that um, for, you know, so they're talking about the same kind of issues of discrimination as you talk about in the U.S. They're being stopped by the cops unnecessarily and uh, at work, they're not being promoted because of for the fact that they're Black. Um, so, yeah, you do find some groups that are within that space, but you'd also find others that seem to just be, you know, yeah. totally fine and not really just feeling at ease and going about their business as, as usual. Was it easy for you to make friends with um, the whites than the blacks? Um, or not really? I mean, because there is yeah. in Canada, there's a, a large population of Ghanaians or Africans in general, there, especially uh, in the Toronto space. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? um, yeah. What was it like for you making friends when you moved to these different spaces? Yeah. So for me, um, just because of, I guess for the reasons why I was in Canada, I was there for school, um, for graduate school mostly. And then I also had a bit of work experience. So just because of the spaces that I found myself in, I really didn't actually come into contact with that many um, Africans um, or even black people. I, um, uh, yeah, my, the graduate programs that I were all in, I, uh, the, yeah, I, I think initially the first graduate program I was in, there was probably like two other black people in my cohort. Um, moving on to University of Toronto, um, I was, as far as I know, I think I was the only black person in the whole uh, cohort mm -hmm. um, for my for my program. So I didn't really come across that many Ghanaians, but uh, or Africans, I should say, or black people for that matter. Yeah. But um, I did uh, initially. I lived in Waterloo. I did go to a, um, 
a Ghanaian church for a little bit. Um, so that's where I, I did meet a number of Ghanaians there. And a lot of them were like-minded. A lot of them were there because of school. They were at the university in different programs. Um, so I did make quite a few friends. This is in Waterloo, my first, the first city I, I lived in, in in Canada. But from then on, like the two other cities I lived in, yeah, you know, everyone else I made friends with tended to be non-Black. And that's just because of the environment I found myself in and the areas I lived in. If I had lived in other neighborhoods, more Black neighborhoods, definitely, I'm sure I would have come across a lot more Black people. Um, so I, I really didn't find where there were Black people. I felt like it was easy to make friends with them. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it was pretty easy making friends with uh, everyone else, you know, regardless of their racial um yeah of, of, of their race yeah so i <laughs> i'm gonna pause a little bit and vent right one of the things that really <laughs> me about some Ghanaians, not all Ghanaians, um is there's this sense of competition right um and i don't know what it is that it's Ghanaians abroad even you know some Ghanaians in, in ghana for example there's this intense sense of competition in the sense that they feel like they have to outdo one another, right? Especially in social settings. Um, I, I don't know why, right? Again, maybe it's because, you know, for me, I grew up in the U.S. a little bit before going back to Ghana and then coming back. But that sense of competition, it's something that, at least for me, is ruining our younger generation right or it ruins the people or the mentality that people have of the united states or of canada or of the western world because you know Ghanaians go back from us from canada from britain and london and they feel the need to show off and they want yeah. to show off to the world why in god's name do we do that <laughs> please help me understand <laughs> oh man, I don't know. And it's it's exhausting, you know. Um just sometimes for just those reasons, I actually choose sometimes not to be so involved in like the Ghanaian communities wherever I find myself. Because oh, yeah, I do that all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I'm just like totally happy. I'm like, you know what? I don't mind occasionally I might go visit these people. If there's a Ghanaian party, I'll show up. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to live amongst them. I'm not going to make all my friends be because it's just everyone's in your business. Everyone's trying to outdo you. Everyone thinks, you know, I don't know why. I don't know why that happens. You know? I don't I, I, I never I had it. Right. I don't know. Again, it's <laughs> it, it, it. Well, so for me here in Iowa City, um, there is there is a fair good number of Ghanaians here. Um, mm. and, and most of them are professionals a lot of them are students and you know we have the you know the the professors the doctors and all of those things and again those individuals they don't really feel the need to um maybe showcase or show off as yep. much, right yeah yeah but those that could people, don't do it right the, the people <laughs> who could actually show off are not the ones actually showing. You don't care for it, yeah. Yeah, the ones that show up who think, oh my God, I am in America and probably not as well yeah. educated. And, you know, they work two or three jobs or, you know, they started some <laughs> business of something. Yeah. And all of a sudden, they feel the need to show off. Yeah. And I don't know why. And it just frustrates yeah. me. <laughs> and, and I think... People like that as well look at you and they're like, what's wrong with you? Like, you know, like for me, for example, I, um, 
I didn't own a car for like the longest time. Like I just yeah. didn't see the need for owning a car, right? But there would be other Ghanaians within the community who like, like you said, you know, semi-educated and working two or three jobs and they're driving all these flashy cars and they look at you like, what's wrong with you? Like, why don't you have a car? Like, how are you just going around on public transit? And, you know, they, they look at you and they're like, this person is just not. Right. <laughs> smart. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because if you look at some of the, the Black um, culture, again, by Black culture, I'm talking about, you know, the African-American culture because that's what I know, right? Um, it, some of them tend to do the same thing too, right? So, you know, people go out and buy like, uh, I don't know, a thousand dollar car and spend five, six, ten thousand dollars on wheels <laughs> on making the car, the tires or the spinning wheels so everything look good. And I'm like, why, why don't you just Our use priorities, that right? Yeah. Ten thousand dollars and just buy a fairly nice car yeah. that wouldn't die on you all the time. A right? reliable car, instead right? Of it all on wheels. Sometimes our priorities as Black people generally are just. Yeah, it's true. You're right. The priorities again, which goes into um, sort of a discussion that I'm going to be having with um, one of my my guests is the Black wealth, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, because again, I think you know, for me, a lot of times. Black folks don't really think about the wealth after, right? Mm-hmm. When they think more about riches, right? So basically you have the money now. The so here and now, yeah. Right, I want to spend it. I want to do this. But I think a lot of times the uh, our white friends actually think more about, okay, what's the wealth of my family, right? Or what's my yeah. wealth and what's mm-hmm. become after me mm-hmm. versus again, not all black people do this, but I think, I think majority of black thinking is like, I have the money now and yeah, I need to live, it. It. <laughs> live it big. <laughs> oh man. So, okay. You finally, um, you're still doing PhD in, um, Toronto, but now you're in Utah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Tell me about that. You are in Utah. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, my journey, my journey continues. I, yeah, uh, what's going on in Utah? <laughs> yeah, so I, um, I left Canada officially about two years ago mm-hmm. to join my husband. And now my husband and I got married. When we got married, I was still in Canada. He was here. So sort of like a long distance uh, marriage for a couple of years there. But I made the, fi- I fi- I made the final move uh, two years ago to join him. He was initially in Houston um, getting fellowship training. He's a physician, so getting fellowship training at the uh, MD Anderson Cancer Center there. So anyway, I joined him there initially. He finished his fellowship and got a um, a position here at Utah, mm-hmm. at the University of Utah um, Cancer Center as an assistant professor. Um, so yeah. He, he interviewed in a number of places. Um, I remember the first time he mentioned that, oh, I got an interview in Utah. I, I kind of laughed because I'm like, Utah, like, where is Utah? Yeah. <laughs> you, know, it's not, you don't often hear about Utah. Um, I didn't even know where Utah was. Um, so I'm like, anyway, it's just an interview. I didn't think, I didn't think much of it because he got right, a number right. of interviews. And then he comes here and he comes back and he's like, I actually really like the place. Um, <laughs> So I'm starting to be like, okay, like Utah. 
I actually had to Google it and just sort of figure out like where it was on the map. And, yeah. and um, so anyway, he absolutely loved it here. And the opportunity they were giving him was, was just something that he couldn't quite say no to. Yeah. Um, so yeah, here we are going to move to Utah. And so honestly, in moving here initially, I was, I just felt really uncomfortable because I just felt like, um, because you hear all these stories, it's the it's the center of the Mormon Church. Yeah. Um, so you're thinking that you know people are probably very um, conservative here, and yeah. it's not the most uh, racially diverse uh, state either. Um, it's a red state also. So um, just all these things that you hear makes you just feel really uncomfortable. So. I come here all the same, like, what am I to do? I have to be the beautiful, beautiful wife. And I'm still a student. So I can use employment as anything. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Not, right? And so we come here. We've been here um, about a year and a half so far. And it's actually worked out really well. Um, you know, it's, yeah, it's definitely not as diverse. But, hey, I mean, I've lived in a number of places. Of places. I'm, yeah, I'm used yeah. to that, that kind of environment. And people are just really, really open and really warm. Um, probably partly as a result of the influence of the church. I, I like to think that that's why people are so open. And the Mormon church, they, they travel a lot to do outreach across the whole globe. Yeah. So you're here and you're talking about Ghana. People know Ghana. It's like, oh, my cousin went to do some missionary work in Ghana. In Ghana and, yeah, you know, yeah th that kind of thing. So it's actually turned out to be pretty good. So I'm still I'm still a student, though, finishing my... PhD remotely with the University of Toronto, um, but he's he's now working. Uh, my husband's working with the uh, Huntsman Cancer Center here nice. as one of their um, surgeons. So he's doing he's doing he's doing well, and he's happy, and we're happy. Good, good. Well, congratulations. Hey, listen, um, I am. Uh, this, this is fabulous. One last question before I let you go, though. What does you know something like you know, the death of Breonna Taylor, um, George Floyd, and all of the innocent, um, was somewhat innocent. People will argue that they weren't innocent, but I should use unarmed <laughs> killings of Black people. What does that do to you, both emotionally and mentally? Yeah, it's just, I mean, in the thick of it all, it was just crippling for me. Um, all of a sudden, I just felt like even more um, paranoid, I, I guess. Mm. I remember there was this one time I, and this is again, just around the George Floyd um, incident. I took a walk with my, my little toddler through, um, there's this, this little nature reserve around where we, we lived. And um, I'm walking with her and I'm seeing like a group of white males in the distance, just standing like off of the path chatting with each other and I see them and all of a sudden my heart just starts like thumping in my ears it's like I'm just so scared all of a sudden yeah. like what if with all the stories I was hearing on the news right I'm like I'm alone here with my my little helpless child like what if I walk past them and they you know they do something to I ended up like turning around I was just so scared so frightened I, I turned around and left the um left the park altogether. So it just made me like extremely paranoid, yeah. um, especially for that period. And just, you know, like I'm, I'm just taking walks and I'm like looking around constantly feeling like, oh, now everyone's gonna like notice me because I'm black and I'm different. And 
um, you know, suddenly it's like, I feel like I really, I even don't, I don't belong here more than I thought I did previously. Yeah. Um, so that was tough. I mean, I guess, you know, time has gone on and I'm, I'm feeling less paranoid than I did before, but, you know, I, for some, it's sad that it had to happen this way, but I'm happy that these things have been brought to mainstream have been brought to the light, you know, issues of racism have been going on forever. I mean, every black person can tell you about some story or the other of, um, of racism, microaggressions that have happened in their time in the US. But just the fact that it's now been brought to light and, um, you know, white people are seeming to somewhat understand and being more conscious of their actions and, um, reactions to to black people uh i think it's i guess it's a step in the right direction it's just so sad that it had to happen the way that it did um yeah absolutely yeah I mean, again i mean i think creating awareness is a big part of it right again you know having those uncomfortable conversations hearing things that um people don't want to hear you know like just your story now i mean a lot of people don't think about that right you know being black is not just about you know how you're treated it's also there's the, the consequences of you see things and then immediately you react or immediately you oh, do yeah. something and you're like, wait, oh, what if, right? There's all those what if situations. All these that, thoughts that are constantly going through your head, like how right. healthy, that's not healthy. How can you right. live a life like that? But right. sadly, just the, the lives of a lot of Black people. Um, yeah. Yes. Yep. Um, yeah, just living those scary lives. Um, what if, right? What if, you know, this could have been me or this could have been, you know, that just, and it's only because I have a different skin color. Right? Yeah. It's like, you can relate <laughs> with these things like so well. And that's part of the reason why it just makes it so scary. It's like just yeah. for the color of my skin, literally that's the only mm. mistake, so to speak. <laughs> well, you know, black is beautiful. We love men black. I enjoy being black. I love being myself. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, and of course, regardless of what people say, going back to Ghana, whether they call me white boy, American boy, whatever it is, yep. home is home. When you're with home your people mm -hmm. and you're having a good time, the food, the energy, the memories, yes. Yes. Oh, the sugar cane and the coconut. Yes. Tell me about it. <laughs> oh, man. But hey, listen, so I'm going to give you one minute to talk, uh, send a uh, message out to the world. Um, I'm going to get you some music some background music i want you to send out a message to the world if you have one minute to tell the world anything what would it be do you think all right um i don't know i guess i'd center on you know it's been it's been a really tough year um year plus i would say for everyone across the globe with this covid19 pandemic um it's been extremely rough, people losing uh, loved ones and losing incomes and uh, all kinds of craziness. But I think I'll just send a message of encouragement to everybody that there is, um, that there is hope, you know, just, um, you know, stand tight, uh, uh, continue trusting whatever it is, it is you believe in. If you're religious, um, do so. Um, just keep your head up. And uh, yeah, we're, we're going to make it through. We're going to make it through. Uh, things will get better. Hey, we are going to make it through. Things will get better. Thank you for joining me on the edge with Eddie, detangling our Black identities. This is 
Dr. Dr. Ifwa Asari. Oh, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Ifwa Asari, hey, listen, thank you so much. Um, continue doing all the great work that you're doing, especially in the clinical optometry space, the vision science, the public health, um, watching out for those who might not have the resources or you know who might not have the, 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 the spaces or the avenue to get the help they need. Um, again, kudos to you. Much love. It was awesome listening. Hey, there is hope. Stay together and it shall be well. Thanks for joining us. It's a Thanks, wrap. Eddie. <laughs>